So it's a woman's job, a woman's role in ending hunger starts because she's the cook. It starts because she's the person who takes care of the children. And it starts because she's the one that's concerned with the health and well-being of her family. That's part of her job, basically, in the developing world. That's Catherine Bertini. And you're listening to Ending Hunger and Malnutrition, Can It Really Be Done? I'm Sivan Yosef, Senior Program Manager at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. On this podcast, we talk to the world's top scientists, policymakers, and practitioners about ending hunger and malnutrition in under a decade. We teamed up with a group of passionate, engaged public health grad students at the University of Michigan. Each episode, one of the students will conduct an interview for us. Women play a huge role in producing our world's food. They perform manual labor in agriculture, they buy and prepare food, and they're the primary caregivers in their households. So how do we support women in making decisions on the farm? And how do we put income in their hands? Natalie Lambricht chats with World Food Prize laureate Catherine Bertini about creating opportunities for women in agriculture. Her solution? Start with education. When I worked at the World Food Program, I remember one day, maybe about six years into my 10-year assignment, sitting home, and a light bulb went off. And the light bulb said to me, if only we could be sure that every girl in the world is educated. If only we could be sure that every girl in the world can read and write. That would be the most important contribution that could be made that will impact positively on every other aspect of poverty. Can you describe what roles women typically have in agriculture, particularly in low- and middle-income countries? Of course, in some cases it varies by country, but generally speaking, women are manual laborers. I don't think we have a word that's womenal laborers, but they're the people that do the the work in the field with hoes, with basic tools, not necessarily with mechanized vehicles. In fact, many times once a uh, production becomes such that mechanization is introduced, then it becomes more of a male uh, work experience. So women work in the fields. They labor in the fields. Often they work all day in the fields. Generally speaking, when we talk about women in much of the developing world, we're talking about people who wake up very early in the morning in order to tender their children, feed their children and their husbands, then go out with some of the toddlers after they have hopefully sent off the older ones to school, uh, milk the cow if they're lucky rich enough to have one, take the milk to the to the uh, uh, co-op, then go into the fields with the little ones running around with babies strapped on their back, work all day in the fields until they bring enough food home at the end of the day along with their children, milk the cow again, bring the milk into the co-op, come back home, cook dinner, feed it to their husband and their children. Their day is very long and is constantly busy with difficult labor. How does this differ between what a man might typically, his, his roles day to day? He'll go off to work if he has a job somewhere. And then 
he'll come back home and have his meals made for him and he can rest. So why are women critical to ending hunger and malnutrition? So it's a woman's job, a woman's role in ending hunger starts because she's the cook. It starts because she's the person who takes care of the children. And it starts because she's the one that's concerned with the health and well-being of her family. That's part of her job, basically, in the developing world. So when a woman has access to income, the money goes farther to benefit the household than if it were in the hands of a man. Why is this? Uh, there have been a lot of studies about this, that, and, and one of the people that talks about it quite eloquently is Mohammed Yunus, the founder of the Grameen Bank. And uh, he says that, and, and IFPRI has done studies about this as well, I should say, uh, where the limit, if, if a limited amount of food comes in, cash comes into the household and goes to the woman, it almost all goes for, for the family because she uses almost all of it for buying things for the family. It could be food, it could be clothes, supplies for school, uh, something else that the family needs. When the income comes into the house under the cash comes in the house under control of the man, then the studies show that it's much more likely to go for something that he wants and less likely to go for something that the family wants. How do we ensure that the income then goes to the woman and not the man? Uh, That's a very tough uh, assignment because it starts with who has a job. And uh, uh, people who have jobs generally get paid and generally get paid in cash. Now, how can we be sure that women have jobs? How can we be sure that they have opportunities? How can we be sure even that they're productive farmers if that's the job they choose? And then that backs us into education, that still the, the, there are many more illiterate women than men in the world. And even though now at, at the primary school level there is more parity between girls and boys in terms of enrollment, that means the people who showed up the first day and signed their names on the board, uh, that does not mean that there's still parity in, ter- in terms of attendance and uh, and even in the quality of the schools provided to girls and boys. So really the base of your question, part of the answer is that we have to do more about assuring that girls can read and count because with those kind of basic skills, they have a better opportunity, as anyone does, for a job or a better job or even more productive agriculture. If you can't count, then how do you know how many rows you have for what you're growing and then therefore how much seeds, how many seeds you need or how many packages of seeds that you need? If you can't read, how can you read the back of the package of the seeds to know how far away to plant the seeds, how much, if any, fertilizer they need, how often they need to be watered? So first, there needs to be schools in villages that are close enough for young children to walk to. And uh, those schools need to have some level, reasonable level of quality. Otherwise, it's much easier for parents who might be on the fence about sending their children to school to keep them home, especially the girls, because they do chores around the house. Now, sometimes a country will say, well, education is free. Oh, but you need to pay for uniforms. Oh, but there's a in order to take an exam. Oh, but there needs to be a special 
a bonus paid to the teacher, as a, that it's not really free, and then poor families can't necessarily afford to send their children to school or all of them to school, and then they decide. So who are they going to decide to send to school? Maybe the oldest child, more likely the boy ch- children. What are some solutions to ensuring that girls receive not only primary education, but also secondary education? It's impossible and, and wrong for us to sit in anywhere, any one place and say, oh, this community needs X. Because what we really need to do if we want to be helpful in a community is talk with that community and get feedback from them and then try to provide what it is that they need. And we need to be sure we're talking to the right people. If you just go and say, okay, I want to talk to the leadership in the community, you that might be the mayor and he's probably male or, or the people that come to a meeting it's more of a man's job in many cultures to go to the meeting than the women's woman's job because she's busy doing other things. It's really incumbent upon anybody um, who might be thinking about funding any of these projects or supporting a, an organization that's going to be working on these projects that they insist that the groups find ways for the voices of women to be heard. Now, I'll give you a few examples of what we did at the World Food Program and uh, where we had some of the same issues in um, Afghanistan, where um, the Taliban said that there could be no women at work, girls at school, or women leaving the house unless they were accompanied by a man. So women went to them and said, you know, widows are going to be home and, and, and die. These were brave women, uh, staff members of the World Food Program, who spoke up and said this. We have to reach women. In this case, it wasn't the voices were women saying this, but the women's voices in Afghanistan generally weren't being listened to. So in that sense, we were able to set up bakeries run by women to which widows could go in order to get food. Uh, so that was a, that was a, a useful effort. In Latin America... In many communities, there exist mothers' clubs, and they've existed for a long time, uh, where women get together to support each other, to support the children in school, and to work on a variety of different programs together. So those are opportunities. We use, at the World Food Program, we use the mothers' clubs as opportunities to hear the voices of, of women. Finally, when you think about women in the world today, what are you most hopeful for? I am most hopeful that women can control their own lives to the fullest extent possible. But my hope is that women, all women, can have a variety of choices to live fulfilling lives. Through their families, yes, but also through the wonders of what's available in the world for them to do when they can read about adventures around the world, when they can invest in land and in business opportunities, and when they can send their children even beyond what they've been able to do. Catherine Bertini is a professor at Syracuse University and the 2003 World Food Prize laureate. To learn more about her work, Google Catherine Bertini, B-E-R-T-I-N-I. Natalie Lambrecht is a grad student in the University of Michigan School of Public Health. 
This podcast is a joint activity of IFPRI's Nourishing Millions Project and the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. You can subscribe to this podcast and learn a lot more about IFPRI by going to the IFPRI website, www.ifpri.org, or the Nourishing Millions website, nourishingmillions.ifpri.info. Today's show was produced by Bella Harold, Natalie Lambricht, Andrew Jones, Zach Rosen, and me, Sivan Youssef. Zach Rosen edited our interview. Music from today's show comes from the Free Music Archive. Until next time, let's innovate, learn, and speed up progress on ending hunger and malnutrition.